This is Fluid Truth, and I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. We explore a simple question of whether there is equity in the justice system. The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation has been edited. It's my pleasure to introduce Chi Anako. Ms. Anako is a public health practitioner whose work has focused on the intersection of public health and health equity solutions. She has focused on food security, violence prevention in youth, and cultural and linguistic programs. She's the regional director for diversity, equity, and inclusion for a regional healthcare system. We sat down together to discuss her own experience and what she's experienced under the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It was really great to have her here with us at Fluid Truth. All right, so this afternoon, I have Miss Anako with me today. I'm so excited. Chi, thank you for coming to speak with me. Absolutely, a pleasure to be here. I'm excited about the conversation moving forward. Yes. Yes. So, before we jump in, and we're going to get into some some goodness that you're going to share, <laughs> but before we jump in, can you share a little bit about yourself? Certainly. Thank you. My name is Chinea Anako. I, you know, hail from Lagos, Nigeria. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, um, so in a few months there, moved back to Lagos, Nigeria. Then my family and I emigrated back to the United States, and so been here since I was 10 years old in the New Haven area, so I think 20 years in now, I guess I can say I'm from New Haven, Connecticut, <laughs> as I begrudgingly admit that. <laughs> truly, truly. But yes, um, you know, I did my undergrad at UConn, so I'm a proud Husky. Um, did my master's at Southern, um, got a degree in public health. My undergrad was in cell biology with a minor in women, gender, sexuality studies, and human rights. And so, you know, in the last few years, I've been working in the healthcare system as a public health practitioner and a DEI practitioner, and DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so that's where my passion lays. Well, that's a wonderful intro, and thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad you're here because it really takes us looking at this issue from many lenses. And when Absolutely. I say this issue, it's a broad conversation. Mm-hmm. So when I speak to you about equity and the justice system, what hits you? You know, equity, that term is so interesting because in the, in the field, in the space that I work in, when we think of equity, we think it from like a health equity perspective, right? Um, what, you know, what are some of the disparities and what that plague uh, marginalized communities? And when I think of equity in a justice system, it's almost, it's the same thing. So because systemic racism and systematic oppression is so deeply rooted in the DNA of our country, the justice system also leans into that, right? So there is the rules apply to different people mm-hmm. and it has we've seen it play out in so many different ways i mean even as early as friday we saw what transpired mm-hmm. and so we you know as a as a people we become more vocal about it we saw the unrest last summer that woke many people up unfortunately some are now back to sleep And so it was a fleeting moment, but many of us, when this is your lived experience, you're still going through it. Um, You know, having not had any direct encounter with the justice system, you know, thankfully, I, I, you know, but I I still see it, right? I'm, I'm a black woman who lives in America. I'm a black woman who travels the world and sees what equity and justice looks like for people that look like me in many different parts of the, of the country. So it it allows for me to look at it from a very different lens than other people are privy to seeing and uh, you know in thinking of the four levels of racism can you uh, clarify what are the four 
um, types of racism. Right. So the four levels of racism, the first one is um, sort of like that individual racism, right? And so that is, it, it's individualized. So it's what we as individ- people have to sort through with ourselves. It's when you're trying to get a good understanding of where you are on your racial identity development. What boat are you on, right? Where do you, how do you see this work, right? And things that you're battling with internally. And a lot of this is shaped on your perception and how your background has affected has shaped your perception, right? So what did you hear, grow up hearing? What did, what stories did your grandparents tell you? What did your community show you? What has the media shown you and what have you internalized, right? So that's that internalized. Second level is interpersonal. So that's, our, you know, the dynamic that you have with other people. And a lot of that shows up because many people don't have conversations mm-hmm. about race and or racism with people that don't look like them. We eat, we break bread, and we live amongst people that often look like us. Right, so we stay in very homogeneous spaces, and because of that, we pe- these conversations don't happen. People shy away from it. It's fairly recently that more people are starting to have those interactions. Right, albeit the burden should not be placed on the oppressed to serve as a means for you to offload whatever guilt you may be feeling. Guilt, guilt is not an emotion that lives here or belongs here. We're looking, we're moving to solutions, right? And so that interpersonal piece is one that we see more people actually struggle with, right? It shows up in a lot of discomfort when it comes to talking about race. And we saw it rear its ugly head during um, COVID-19 with the discrimination that the Asian community faced. Right. And so so there's that. And it, 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 sh- it can also show up as racial profiling, who gets pulled over the most. Right. Who we see it as um, even profiling while you're shopping. I have to think about what I wear when I'm going to a high end store to buy this bag and to all do all these different things because I don't want to be profiled when I walk into that store. Right. And what so, do you lean towards in that instance? In those instances, I am professional. Is it that I go after work? or I make sure that I am dressed. I make sure that I don't have extra bags with me. I make sure that it, I, 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 don't, I don't give off any sense of, mm, let, let's watch her, even though it still may happen. And that's, that's a lived experience many people don't ever have to encounter. Right? Does that feel burdensome to you? Oh, it's extremely burdensome. It's like you leave your house and you, all, you have to put, you know you throw on that cloak, right? And that cloak is, uh, is what you have to put on to protect yourself. At any, at any point. But we know that even in your safe spaces, you can easily be harmed, right? We saw many instances before even Breonna Taylor right. that has happened when you're in your own home. Atiana Jefferson's case is just starting, right? That's been, that was two years ago that she was killed in her own home playing video games with her nephew. So we see, we see the level of consistent trauma that our communities face. And is it getting better? I don't know. And that's not to discredit the many fighters that advocated to even get us to where we are. We're, I can be on this platform having this conversation with you, but there's so much more work to be done. So those two levels are often the levels where people struggle the most because it's, it's, it's within them. These next two levels have the biggest impact because of how it shapes our society, right? So institutional, who's, how are policies made? Right. Right, and you tie that into the criminal justice system or just justice in general, right, in, in that space. Um, you think of when decisions are being made to even have like a grocery store in a certain particular city. The city of Hartford has 125,000 individuals that live there and they don't really have a mid-sized grocery store in that space. The town over West Hartford is half that population size. They have a Trader Joe's, they have Whole Foods, they have Big Y, 
have stopped and shop. So now, now you see a financial leakage leaving Hartford because people are shopping elsewhere. So that's now affecting that right. city's economy, right? And so even in New Haven, right, they closed the one stop and shop that was in Hamden, right? Right, they closed that one in the New Haven County area. They closed that one, and so you only have one left, right, on Whaley Avenue. And you can tell aesthetically the difference when you walk into that stop and shop versus when you walk into the one further down in Hamden across from the Hamden Plaza. It's very obvious, right? So it's those micro things that exist that, that make the experience very different for the marginalized individuals and those who hold the power. And then we go to systemic. That's what's ingrained in our system, right? That, that, is, the, <clears throat> that, is, the, that is the level that upholds and reinforces all the other levels. It, it dictates who gets access. It dictates who gets resources, right? We see it exist in things like redlining, right? You know, we see it exist in the black and indigenous women maternal health crisis that we're currently in, you know? And I'm a black woman at some point who's going to look forward to having children. And I, and, and I, don't, I don't want that to be my reality. So before jumping in, and I know you have some lived experience to share, what's the path forward? Let's not lean in on, oh, reverse racism. Let's not lean in on, on white guilt. That's, we're solution oriented. You say you're an ally. You know, we need you to be an accomplice. I love that. We need you. And in order to be an accomplice, you need to ask yourself how far and how willing are you, how far are you willing to go when it comes to fighting for racial justice and equity, right? And that and, and that's how we, we start having a conversation and moving forward. We saw what accomplices looked like in the past, in the 60s and the 70s, during desegregation and the fight for that. We saw individuals with the privileges lay their lives to for the advancement of you know, individuals who identify as being black, which also allowed for other marginalized communities as well to be able to, you know, fight for their freedom in many different pockets and many different spaces. So we need to start having a conversation. We can't shy away from it. It exists. We know it exists. We can't say, oh, I, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know your experience was so different. You knew you just chose not to see it. I love what you said about being an accomplice. Mm -hmm. That really just sticks with me right now because I think we're all familiar with allies and Mm -hmm. how we're trying to uh, bring everyone into the work. Right. But the accomplice is that much more. Oh, absolutely. It takes it takes a level of grit. It takes a level of boldness. It takes a level of transparency to be an accomplice. You're you're right there with me. We're in lockstep to fight this fight. Even more so, you're ahead of me, and you're and and you're always looking back to make sure I'm good. Right, that's what an accomplice is, and and an ally oftentimes can can turn into a bystander very easily, and that's what we don't need anymore. Right, last year was the un, like it was a it was a it was a wake up call. It was America reckoning with its own history, right? And we we were all we all had to be silent to listen. Some, not all. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make the assumption that everyone was glued to the TV watching the the complete loop of a man being killed on you know on television. And I also want to be very clear that this is not just akin to black men. This is akin to black women who often suffer on both ends, where your gender and your race play a significant role. The women are the ones who are often left to take care of the familial household when the man is incarcerated, when he is killed. They bear that financial burden. They're the, and oftentimes they're the parent that stays. They're the, they're the ones left. 
So they they play they play that dual role, right? And so even in certain spaces, we have to also have lift them up in conversation and ensure that we highlight their struggles as well, because they too can be in the opposite end of that. We know that Black women, especially if we think of the justice system. Even we can we can take this a step further and pull in colorism. Darker skinned black women get harsher sentences than than you know another woman you know or anyone of any lighter complexion or hue, right? So it's it it's it's definitely it's multifaceted. It doesn't just live in in this one space. It it goes and expands, you know, significantly more. So you know if if discomfort to me is just another example of you not wanting to. Um, reckon with what role that you're playing in all of this. So you rather just avoid it. And I think avoidance is why many of us, why we're still in the state that we're in. I was thinking similarly. Mm-hmm. So to be in this predicament where we're needing to have these conversations, yeah. I welcome it. I mean, mm-hmm. it is a wonderful thing to have the conversations, but I mm-hmm. all often do wonder, how come I didn't grow up having these conversations? Because mm-hmm. yeah. I also grew up here in Connecticut. How come this was not a part of some of the curricula that mm-hmm. I've, I've experienced through school, through many, many years of school. How mm. come we didn't have that? Well, nobody wants to talk about something when they know that, they know the truth behind it. So you rather just avoid it or you skew it so it fits whatever narrative, you know, that you're trying to push forward. Because also what you don't want to do is to sort of awaken people. When you awaken people, they start noticing. They start noticing, they start asking questions. When they start asking questions, they want to hold people accountable. And so if we can completely avoid all of that, we can have these next few generations continuously grow up. And as time moves on, maybe we can start actually leaning away from what that past was, right? There are people who don't know what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? Till, till today, right? I think till the HBO series came out, people became more enlightened. And even till now, there are people who are like, "Why well, I didn't know that, right? There are people who are not familiar with the sterilization of Puerto Rican women that took place. Right, people know about Tuskegee to to some extent, but there's so many other instances that have occurred. Let's even think about the history of gynecology, right? Dr. Sims is known as the father of gynecology. There's a statue in New York of him right in front of the med- medical school, right? He is seen as the father of gynecology, the person who has, who who literally created his entire career, on 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 the backs of black women, black and in, formerly enslaved women, Betsy, Anarcha, and Lucy. These three names ring bells constantly, right? The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology had to recently apologize for the role that they've played in all of this. I didn't realize they even apologized, so I'm glad for that. Yeah, Uh uh-huh. So to me, and they put out the statement, and now February 28th and March 1st, the bridge between Black History Month and Women's History Month is known as you know, as a day to honor Betsy and Archer and Lucy. Beautiful. Because of the role that they played in the advancement of gynecology to be where we currently are now. Beautiful. You know? That's so bittersweet, but Mm -hmm. the acknowledgement is significant. And as you were speaking, I'm just starting to hear that the next generation, um, they have more tools. Mm -hmm. They have more information. They're plopped dead in the middle of the Mm -hmm. information age, more so than even we were. Absolutely. And I believe that they are rallying Mm -hmm. and of course it's not everyone it's not to the exclusion or inclusion of everyone absolutely but i see that they are rallying in a rate that is so much greater than even what i remember because this moves the conversation forward right and and i'm glad that we're giving them the platform to do so 
right? I know, you know, during a lot of the protests last year, a lot of people that I know were kind of nervous about their children going out, and that's people from all different walks of life. They were nervous about their children going out and, you know, what could happen. And I was just like, you can't, but you can't stop them. They're the movement, you know? Our people's grandparents went out and had to fight, and that's why we got the advancements that we have now, right? That's that's why in, in the last quote unquote 57 years of equality that, you know, black individuals in America have been rendered. Um, that's why we're able to be in this space. That's why my family was able to immigrate here. And, you know, although my parents schooled here, we were able to come back and benefit from a lot of things that were in, instilled by folks who advocated to get us here. And so that's the piece that I always want to highlight about the different experiences, because black people were not a monolith. So me not having spent my formative years in the U.S. is very different than a black girl who's lived her entire life. There's a level of trauma that is instilled in her that she grows up with that I am very fortunate to not have been through. That's a privilege that I come with as well. I also come to the table with a privilege of education. I come to the privilege of living in a middle-class home, all of these other different things. And so I know that my experience differs than an individual who identifies as black and their ancestry and their shared history is is tied into slavery and American history, right? So, and I, and I highlight that every time because I wanna make it very clear that that experience is different. However, now that I am existing in this world, in this space, the treatment is, the same because when they see me no no one's clocking where I'm from they don't know where I spent my formative years they don't know they don't know about my education they don't know about any of those things and and I'm there's in no capacity am I saying those things should by default render me to feel safer or to mm. not be mistreated you know all of those things are just pockets of privilege but the same way that I hold individuals who identify as white to highlight their privileges, the same way I hold people of lighter complexion in our community to acknowledge your privileges, I too am gonna acknowledge mine as well. You know, because I, I never wanna come off like I'm trying to monopolize a conversation or, you know, that my plight is um, is equivalent to someone who has faced the level of oppression that they have in this country from birth. That's a wonderful point to highlight, especially considering that we cannot all be viewed in similar light. Absolutely. There's so many varieties to our lived experience. Mm -hmm. But that's a great segue for you to share your lived experience. I know you and I um, had a brief conversation where you said there is something to tell. Oh, absolutely. So share it, please. So it was two years ago, April 2019, um, a friend of mine lived in Maryland, in Bowie. And another friend of mine, we've all been friends since college, you know, so um, her and I decided to drive up to visit our friend. <clears throat> we had a wonderful day. We went to the African American Museum. We ate there, you know, and again, right, that walking through that museum, it really does something to you, right? It puts you in a very solemn and somber space, a very reflective space. So we had many conversations, you know, um, after that in the house from when we were getting dressed. And so she's like, let's go get something to eat. And I'm like, sure. And um, she's like, oh, you know, this place, I think it's black owned, let's check it out, very lively. I was like, sure. So we get there, and I'm a person, I'm very aware of my surroundings, that's one thing about me. And so I immediately, I was like, well, this place is relatively heavily, heavily policed, but you know, whatever, that's usually how things go when you're in establishments that have, you know, significantly more black patrons, that's the truth, right? Because of that perception and those stereotypes that are placed on us. So we walk in and 
I immediately, so I'm a Yelper. I'm a, I'm a Yelp elite, right? So when I go to places, I'm, I'm watching everything. I'm, I'm looking at the decor. I'm looking at the, um, you know, how warm is the staff? I'm just noticing everything. And so immediately my eyes like zoomed in on a signage they had eight and a half by 11, um, right in the front of the, um, of the station where the, um, what do they call the person who checks you in the hostess? Yeah. The hostess. Yes. And so it read, it was a dress code. Right. And so I'm, I always kind of side eye dress codes because they often, you know, are very rooted in coded language. And so this dress code was very explicit. It was, you know, midriff showing, no, um, chest out, you know, no in like inappropriate clothing, no this, no, jewelry and i was just like this is a little obscene and then of course you know very targeted no do rags no um this no that and so i'm looking i was just like well first things first and it's not a five-star establishment so i'm i i was like okay um that's alarming so at this point i had a hoodie on but it was cropped so technically i'm violating the dress code because i said no midriff no none of that and so a lot of establishments have gotten in trouble because of the dress code because they were very targeted to black individuals and th- certain things that we wear like places will say no tims no this and it's just like like i can't wear timblins in an establishment like that literally doesn't make sense and so i you know i asked the hostess i was just like can i get some clarity around this signage and she was just like well i don't really know much about it i was like can you get the manager please and at this point you know my friends tend to be a little bit more quieter than I am, but again, my my a lot of assessments I've taken have told me I'm an equalizer. So I'm all about equity, fairness, justice. I will speak up when I feel like something is not appropriate that can, um, you know, affect someone else. And so, manager comes and you know he's I'm just like, can you explain this to me? He was like, yeah, this is just this is our rules. This is how things are. I was like, so technically by default I should not be allowed in here because I'm violating the dress code. And he was like, no, you're fine. And I was like, did you measure the my midriff? Because I'm a little confused as to how you with, who are you to dictate what works and doesn't work? Like I'm confused. Either you have a dress code and you stay by it or you don't. And I was like, how come a lot of these things are a little bit rooted in heavily in misogyny and also um, in misogynoir because it's really targeting in, in, towards black women. That's who you serve. That's your patron. I'm looking around this establishment and everyone in here is black. And he was just like, well, that's just what it does. I was like, and, and I try to personalize it to him. I was just like, you know, they just recently, I think they, and I'm not certain that they had just passed the crown act at that point. And I was like, you're an individual who has locks for so many years. Your hairstyle was frowned upon. It was discriminated against so much so that they have to have an actual rule that says discrimination against any form of natural hair is not legal. And, you know, he was just like, well, that's just what it is. And so my friend's like, you know, let's just sit and eat. We sat down and I, I was still, I was wrestling with it. I was like, I really don't want to give this place my money. I don't, I'm very uncomfortable here. And so I said, let me go online and see if this dress code is online. Cause if it's here, then it should be online. Online, absolutely not. There were none of that was listed online. I think it may have said like um, kind of the typical no no shirts, no shoes, no service type of thing. And then so I asked, I was like, can I speak to the general manager? I'm like, I'm I'm still a little bit uncomfortable. I know the GM is here. It's a very busy Saturday night. You're not the only manager here. The service said, okay, I'll go get her. 
an hour goes by and she doesn't come. The server comes back. I said, where is your GM? He was like, honestly, she doesn't want to come to the table. She, he was like, I was like, why? She was like, because she knows there's three black girls that need to talk to her and she doesn't want to speak to you all. I said, okay, understood. But I'm not going to leave till she comes. So we can we can play this however you want to let her know that. She knows coming like when we're um, getting our check and she comes in extremely defensive. She is... Um, just in the attack like I didn't even think there wasn't even a warm greeting to kind of get a full scope as to what transpired and so she was extremely inappropriate in her approach and I was just like yeah no I was like this is this is deplorable and so I was like yeah we're leaving I don't even want to finish my meal we paid and as we were walking out my friend was like this sign is I think she's like this sign is absolutely like ridiculous and all these different things so we get in the vehicle um, and I think um, upon exit, she like kind of like flicked the sign, like kind of like this, kind of like, you know, this is just ridiculous. It's, it's, it's an eight and a half by 11, you know, barely, barely hanging on for their life. This thing was crumpled up. It was, it was old. So, you know, and they were saying it was just something they just placed there, right? It wasn't really meant to be taken as literal. This is what the manager has said to me. So we get in the vehicle and before she even pulls out, there are six cop cars surrounding our vehicle. And one of them, I think, had his gun drawn, and he's like, get out the car. And I told her, I was like, don't get out the car, take the key out of the ignition, put it on the dashboard, and put your hands on the steering wheel, as did I. And my friend in the back did as well. Um, I said, mouth and let him know that you're motioning to put the window down. And she does that, and he comes to the car, and he was just like, we were told, again, they were all there because the place is heavily policed, so they were already in that space. Um, so he said he was told that we were causing we were being disruptive. They would charge us for, um, what's this charge is escaping me. It's like when you're being disruptive, it's like a, you know, legal term or whatever. And so in my head, I'm like, yeah, this, this can't, this cannot be real. Right. Not a, after what we've experienced today, going to the museum, seeing all of these different things. And so here we are now having this very close and lived in experience. And so she, um, she told them that no, we were not being disruptive. We were, in a very calm tone we were expressing our thoughts and feelings and they felt cornered and didn't know how to address it appropriately and then so now at this point all the cops are still standing there at one point one of them was banging on the hood of the car get out get out and i was like don't get out this car and then so the other one was like give me your give me your license give me this and we all gave it to him right you know at that point my friend worked for the government so right there's this level of fear and it's just the three of us and i'm just like i, I don't know what's going to pan out and so um, maybe like 10 minutes in, once they got all our information, a few of them started like just trickling off. So I think at this point it was like two, two or three left. Once they saw again, maybe there was nothing threatening about the situation. Um, and then he, and then he was just like, well, you guys technically can't touch public property. Cause she like flicked the sign over and, um, I was like an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper is now considered public property okay you know okay you know she shouldn't have touched it fine whatever that situation is but did it warrant this sort of response all right um and then so one of the cops stayed back and we're just talking and then he's just like you know you could have just let it go y'all could have just let it go you, you weren't affected by it he said you could come in with your crop top so what did it matter and i was like that response and stance is why we're in the predicament that we are in this world because people feel like you don't speak up because it's not affecting you. So you turn a blind eye 
and oppression continues and it continues and continues. And so, you know, he, he's in, in many words basically said us as millennials, we, we're always ready to protest something, we're always ready to fight for something. You know, some things you just gotta let go. And he, you know, he's seen real, he's seen real racism. He's seen all of this based on when he grew up. And in no way am I doubting his, his experience, right? Or doubting that, but you also can't speak on mine and you know, how, how we react to certain things. And so we ended up being in that car talking to him for, you know, maybe even an additional hour, hmm. just having dialogue, education. And, you know, we're telling him that our last semester of college is when everything happened with Trayvon Martin. And that and that's when it really started for us. So the last 13 plus years of our lives have been, you know, this. Um, and so, you know, we all went back and, it, you know, no one was really talking. And then we got in the room and then I think I said something to kind of like break us into conversation. Then it was just like, you truly could not believe that happened. And it's interesting because prior to that, when when I was in college, someone told me that to make sure that when I graduated, that I should have a bunch of decals, like just college decals around my car. And I was like, I mean, I love UConn, but why? And they were like, it's a, it's a way to protect yourself because if you get pulled over, what it does is it disarms the police officer before he even gets to your window because it immediately puts them in a space of giving you the the, um, that bias and leaning into more of a positive space because they th- they know you're educated, so you, be- really you, be- you become a little bit more or less threatening. And I kid you not, that's so many times. Times I have been pulled over, and they see the Yukon flag in the back, they see the license plate. It's always like, oh, when'd you graduate? Because I'm in Connecticut. Everyone loves Yukon's women basketball. It's a conversation starter. You know, it's always all right. Well, be safe. Take care. And the same thing happened in that experience with my friends and I, she had a sticker. And that's how it started the conversation of, you know, so you guys are college educated. Why are you sitting here starting trouble? Wow. So it's just even those very small micro things that we have to do to survive um, because we don't know how that situation could have ended up because all they heard was three black women, aggressive, again, coded language, aggressive, they're threatening, we feel unsafe. And then here we are. You're absolutely right in terms of how that situation could have ended. Mm-hmm. So I'm I, there's so much to unpack there, and we're not going to do this all in that one conversation. But the presence of mind to defy an officer's order to get out the car mm-hmm. that may have really turned how the situation went. You know, that may have really curbed some additional escalations. We have work to do, and we start with the conversation and we move forward from that. Absolutely. Ms. Nako, thank you so much for being here. It's my thank pleasure to you. speak I with you today. It. it was a pleasure being here as well. Thanks for listening in today. Special thanks to our producer, Johnny Marquat, and executive producer, David DeRoche. Shout out and big thanks to the Fluid Truth crew for their assistance. That's Jackie Callanan, Raynette Shafu, and Jake McCarthy. Music is provided by Audio Hero from their Jazz Lounge album. To hear more about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can listen to all of our podcasts on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at QU Podcasts. If you have a story to share or something you want to talk about, find us on social media or shoot us an email. The address is QUPodcasts at QU.edu. Hope you'll join us for the next show. All right, that's it for today. Till next time.